0: Alright, Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose. Uh, Glad to be here. Uh, I have been asked uh, by our uh, very pastor to uh, talk about the difference between a Matthew 18 church discipline and a Titus 3 church discipline. And uh, that's a very, very... Uh, great topic to talk about and the Bible has a lot to say about that so I'm going to ask that all of you bow your heads with me in prayer and uh, we're just going to get right into it let's pray Heavenly Father we want to thank you for today we want to ask you Lord to have mercy on us sinners uh, that struggle in more ways than we would like to ever admit Lord and we just know that Lord that you will um be faithful uh, and provide us, Lord, with the with the, the Holy Spirit to help us today to have a clearer understanding about how we are to um, to be eager to keep the unity in the church. And Lord, I ask for help personally that I could bring uh, the truth of Your Word uh, clearly and to be helpful to others. Um, open up the scriptures to others, Lord, and help uh, the glory of Christ to shine bright. So we pray uh, all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, I do actually have a title uh, today, and the title today is Dealing with the Invasion of Persuasion. Dealing with the Invasion of Persuasion. We're going to talk about what the scripture says about um, handling divisive people in the church and I'm going to start off by saying that the topic of discipline you know any type of discipline whether it's from your parents or from the church uh, it's not a pleasant topic not the most popular thing to talk about but the Bible has uh, a lot of verses that we should consider in regards to how we view discipline in Psalm chapter 94 verse Verses 12 to 14, it says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So when was the last time you thought that discipline was a sign that God has been faithful to you? Um, That discipline is a sign that God has not abandoned you as one of his children. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, um, this is one of actually my favorite verses because I heard a sermon about this and it just uh, opened up my mind to how God actually sanctifies us. But it says right here, um, talking about earthly fathers, the the verse here says, For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best, To them, but He, the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. That is an amazing verse to me. That ultimately, all discipline coming from the Lord is so that we can become more like Christ, that we can actually share His holiness. And what a thought that is! It is the goal of every Christian. To um, attain or to seek after holiness and closeness with the Lord. And that is not something we take lightly. I'm going to read something here. Well, first, let me read our main passage. So, here's our main passage. Um, you know, I do have some cross references in this message, but the main passage today is going to be Titus chapter 3, verse 10. And I'm going to read it right now. Um, follow with me if you have your Bible. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. I'm going to read some notes here from, um, you know, I did some research and I stumbled upon some wonderful notes by a pastor by the name of Michael Stark. Um, he's a Baptist preacher, and I don't think he's particularly famous or anything like that, but I really like his notes uh, for this particular passage, and I just want to use it as my introduction. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and it's going to mention Harry Ironsides. And if you guys don't know who Harry Ironsides is, he uh, was the former pastor of the Moody, Moody Church. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and read this and, uh, as an introduction. Harry Ironsides was quoted as saying, the brightest light draws the most moths." He was referring to cranks, those seemingly ubiquitous individuals who feel themselves compelled to be divisive within a congregation. These individuals are what some, speaking colloquially, have called gainers. They are, again, every advance by a congregation treating every change within the assembly as a threat. Whenever these individuals are presented with a new opportunity or a new idea, without thinking, they reject the idea. They are thoroughly versed in the negative mode, and at every suggestion of change, they squawk out one raspy refrain, we've never done it that way before. If we are even remotely familiar with the writings of the Apostles to the Gentiles, we know that cranks have been a problem among the churches since the earliest days. It is one thing to hold biblical convictions. It is quite another to cling to personal preferences, as though such preferences enjoyed divine sanction. Stirring up division among God's people is not a new phenomenon. It is as old as sin itself. The apostle to the Gentiles was forced to address the matter when he wrote to a hand-selected missionary serving on the island of Crete. Titus faced a difficult situation in his service to the Cretans. Apparently, the difficulties of ministry were sufficiently severe that he weighed resigning his commission. Paul, however, would have none. I don't know how many of you have ever read the Book of Titus. It's not the longest book in the Bible, for certainly it's one of the shorter ones. But it is actually considered, along with First and Second Timothy, um, the, uh, one of the pastoral epistles in Scripture. And so before we talk about how we deal with divisive people in the church, remind us and do just a wonderful walkthrough on the concept of unity in the church. I want to begin with the topic of unity. Unity comes from the idea of a single unit or an undivided unit. It implies oneness. It wouldn't be an overstatement to say that the overarching theme in the Bible is about unity with God. Sin is Separated mankind from God and the Bible tells us what God does to reconcile sinners back to himself. In the Gospel of John chapter 17 verses 20 to 23 John 17 verses 20 to 23, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. And love them even as you loved me. This passage in the Gospel of John is fascinating because even God has unity within the Trinity. The Father and the Son, and based on other passages, along with the Holy Spirit, they have a holy unity within itself. God is one, a single unit. And yet God is three persons. And Christ says here that he wants all those who will believe in him to believe and be one, just like the Father and the Son are one. Christ and believers, and the Father in Christ, it says in verse 23, so that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that the Father sent Christ and loved believers us as the father of Christ. This is the way Christ describes our unity with him and with one another. In Ephesians chapter four, verse three, here's another passage. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. The word unity in this passage passage appears nine times. Christians are commanded to maintain the unity of the body because that is who we are in Christ, that is who we are in the Spirit. That is who Christ is in the Father, and that is who God is in himself. That is the amazing concept of unity. It is clear that the obvious characteristic of true believers is unity. And with that said, I want to highlight how much God hates division. Look at Proverbs chapter six verses sixteen to nineteen. Proverbs six, sixteen to nineteen. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are, are an abomination to him: haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. In many ways, division is the work of Satan. Satan was the first to separate himself from the heavenly host by elevating himself, thinking he could become like God. That's found in Isaiah 14, 12, 14. And ever since sin has entered into the world, we see division. Disagreements, disunity, and contentious arguments all throughout the world. But the Lord's church is not to be described that way. The body of Christ is to be characterized with unity, agreement, avoidance of quarreling, and fellowship with one another. So, one of the most critical responsibilities of pastors and elders in the church is to protect the church from division, and to remind the church to be eager to keep the unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the whole chapter is essentially Paul addressing divisions within the body. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. That's the command. Avoid them. Avoid divisive the people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The Bible does lay out a special warning for dealing with those who are divisive. And the Bible does actually lay out a way to specifically deal with divisive people. And that's found in Titus 3.10. It says right here in Titus 3.10, Ask for a person who stirs up division. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The word who stirs up division is actually one Greek word. It's translated from a Greek word where it comes from the word heretic, and it sounds actually more like heretikos. That's how that word is pronounced, heretikos. If you look at Strong's Greek lexicon, heretikos is defined as a factious person specializing in half truths and misimpressions to win others over to their personal opinion and their misguided zeal. While creating a harmful division, right? It's a politician type basically who will compromise just to win people over to believe them. It doesn't necessarily mean a heretic, even though it sounds like it. This person is literally someone with misguided passion a misguided agenda that causes other people to be swayed to their error. They have some erroneous view, some erroneous position against the proper doctrine of the church or even the philosophy ministry of the church, and it's causing divisions. And the process laid out here, it's simple. In Titus chapter 3 verse 10, warn him once or twice. Then have nothing more to do with him. So, how does this compare with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20? Well, in simple terms, there's a four step process in a typical church discipline case. Step number one tell the sinning person one on one and tell them their faults. Or, in other words, explain what they did that was sinful. And the assumption here is to do that, of course, using scripture. Step number two. Bring two or three along with you if the sinning person doesn't listen. And the two or three is is to become a witness to the persistent sin pattern if that person still does not listen. Step number three is to tell the sin about the sinner and the persistent sin to the church. And the church is now involved in the discipline process. The church, it, it is implied here that the church goes after the sinner and tries to win them over. And then step four, if they do not even listen to the church, if the sinning person does not listen to the church, that that person is to be treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, this fellowship, this person. No casual social interaction. That's what the tax collector was shunned from society, from, shunned from weddings, shunned from parties shunned from you know you really there's no casual interaction with this person anymore um and then treat them like a gentile and that's like a person outside the covenant so treat them like an outsider essentially and the only appropriate interaction with after a fourth fourth step in a church discipline with this person is to call them to repentance and to remind them that they have no agreement with the church until they repent and agree with Christ about their sin. So what's the difference? Well, there is no mention in Titus chapter 3, 10, 3 verse 10 about two or three witnesses, no explicit mentioning. Um, there is no explicit mentioning of telling it to the church. And there is no explicit mentioning of a conditional statement to take action if the divisive person doesn't listen to the church. It doesn't seem to be any type of contingency on um, how the person responds to the church. The idea in Titus chapter three, verse 10, is that you wanna keep this process shorter, okay? Because you're dealing with the divisive person. And I think that's the main difference here. You wanna keep this process shorter, because earlier in Titus chapter three, it's talking about avoid foolish talk, avoid myths. Don't don't go into quarrelling and arguing about words. These are the types of things that have long, drawn-out discussion, maybe even multiple meetings that can drain the leadership. It can drain the pastor. It can also um, prevent the church from moving forward. Um, this is the type of person that has no consideration for the time of counselors and shepherds, but they just constantly want to talk and split hairs about petty things, about something about the Bible or something about some opinion they have. And the Bible warns us, don't fall into those traps. Okay, So that's the idea with Titus 3.10. It seems a little bit more urgent because the process is cut shorter, um, the warning of once or twice, okay, is, is basically seems like don't waste your time with someone like this. Now let me talk about uh, a few other things because just because it's not mentioned in Titus 3.10, if, you're, if you read it in light of all of scripture or other parts of scripture, um, it's going to become a little bit more clear what the intention from Paul is here. It is interesting that there is no mention about two or three witnesses in Titus 3.10. But, okay, it's mentioned in so many other places in Scripture that I believe we can safely presume that Paul had the two or three witness process in still. So what's the case for that? Okay, I'm going to walk us through that. The two or three witness process was not... First introduced in Matthew 18. The two or three witness process was not first introduced in Matthew 18. The two or three witness process was actually first introduced in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 in the Old Testament. And it says this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. right. So in fact, the concept of two or three witnesses is extensively and consistently brought in multiple passages in scripture. So in Numbers chapter 35 verse 30, it says that even murder can only be convicted of by two or three witnesses, and it specifically states that one witness is not enough. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 28, it reiterates that even by the law of Moses that two or three witnesses was enough to be sentenced to death on a crime. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, Paul says he's coming again a third time to the Corinthian church. And he's been warning them about sin through letters and messages to the church. And Paul says he's coming again and that he will discipline all those who are persistently sinning on the charge of two or three witnesses. So even Paul understood that two or three witnesses was still part of not only the Matthew 18, but the biblical model on how to charge any crime with anyone in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. The elder board is commanded not to consider any sin accusation against another elder unless there's two or three witnesses. And so this is not just for elders. It's, it's actually 1 Timothy 5:19 is a reiteration of a principle that applies for every single member in the church meaning that just because they're a higher office in the church um, and one person says that there's a heinous sin and accuses the elder, but the elder denies it, one witness is not going to be enough to condemn that person of that sin or discipline that person that's that sin, even if they're an elder or a pastor. So let's also look at even church history. You know, there uh, in church history, uh, the Catholic Church took heretics very seriously, and we know the whole story in the 16th century. Martin Luther was charged as a heretic when he was teaching that salvation is by faith alone. And so he had to stand before the entire council in Germany and give a defense, right? So so what's the point of me mentioning that? I'm just saying that there are examples even in church history where um, someone who is being divisive in a church is still given a chance be examined and and that's a really important part of scripture Um, so now if something as serious as a crime like murder still requires two or three witnesses i feel very comfortable that even a divisive person needs two or three at least witnesses to charge a person of being a divisive person right which means that even myself as an elder, no matter how uncomfortable a single person makes me feel, maybe I'm deeply disturbed by even one person that I don't just go and say I'm a you know and start charging the church and saying, avoid this person, this person's divisive. Um, we're still gonna follow a biblical process, and so the two or three witnesses is still important even to the Titus 3:10 process. So let's go back to the Titus three ten. Now that we looked at it in light of scripture, I believe it is biblical to, for the process in Titus 3.10 to be understood more like this, that step one is still go tell the divisive person their sin and error. You still gotta confront the divisive person. In step two, if he doesn't listen, you still bring two or three along. This part is still identical to Matthew 18. You don't change any of this part because um, the two or three witnesses is, is necessary to establish any charge anyways. And maybe by God's grace, the person that is seemingly appearing to be divisive could also repent based on the fact that two or three people are still there. So this is still a gracious process that where the aim is still repentance, not to just throw people out of the church. And then step three if he doesn't listen to any correction, have nothing to do with them. Avoid them, it says in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. And also in Titus 3.10, it says, it says, don't have anything more to do with them. Meaning the process is ended. That's it. That's it. So there's your difference. There's your difference between Titus 3.10 and Matthew 18. There is no command from our Lord, okay, to have the church go after a divisive person. There is no command from our Lord to have the church go after a divisive person. If anything, the church is commanded to avoid and to leave alone a divisive person. It is the job of the elders of the church to charge the church in the spirit of unity and with the intention to protect the church from confusion and division, to stay away from a divisive person. Now that's a pretty tough command, isn't it? Doesn't that kind of also seemingly go against all your intuition about what a church should be? And if you're not familiar with these passages, this could seem... Um, a very difficult concept of not going after a person when it seems like shouldn't we be going after a lost sheep. Yes, yes. With Matthew 18, I just want to make it clear that the church is charged to go after lost sheep, just like the parallel the lost sheep. But I also want to make it clear that Titus 3.10 is a different side of the same coin. Matthew 18 and Titus Three are still under the umbrella of church discipline. They're both considered a form of church discipline, but they are both different sides of the same coin. Where Matthew eighteen, you want to involve as many people as possible if the person is persistent in sin. but in titus three ten you want to involve the least amount of possible because the more people that interact with a divisive person, there's a chance for a church split. Division, confusion. And all discipline, like the verses I read initially at the start of this message, all discipline is a loving thing that God does for his children, just like parents do for their children. Some of you are young parents. Some of you just have babies. And you will, in love, need to discipline your children as well. When when I discipline our children, okay, as a father, I always tell them why I am disciplining them. What did they do wrong? Why is it sin? And when I discipline them, I always make sure that the consequence somehow fits with what they did wrong. But ultimately, I always ask them this question. Do you know why you're being disciplined? Why am I? Why am I disciplining them? And by now, because we've done this so many times, they know the answer I'm looking for. They say because you love us. They say because you love us. It is so important for me as a father that they know that that I discipline them because I love them, not because I'm angry at them, not because I hate them, or I am so disappointed them that I'm ashamed to be their father. No, none of those things. I am disciplining them because I'm trying to teach them the concept of sin. I'm also trying to clarify the concept of the gospel. And I always do my best, as imperfect as I am, I always do my best to connect all discipline to the gospel. That it is a reminder of sin in their lives. It's a reminder why Jesus died on the cross. And it's a reminder on how much they need. The wisdom of the word of God, that without the word of God, all of us, including myself, would be total foolish people. Right? completely foolish, with no good in our lives, no light in our hearts. The word for correction in the Bible, it can be translated from the Greek word padia, padea. And padia. In the Greek it has two concepts based on the context. Padilla can describe education. the education system was also a Padea. It was a training education, so that word when it's correction it's translated correction in the English, it can be correction in the sense of educating and training. But depending on the context, the word could also be to correct someone from error. To rebuke, to reprove somebody, and to convince someone of their wrong. Those are the two concepts based on the context. And we are to padia those members that are in sin, but we're also to padia those who are appearing to be divisive. And the process from Matthew 18 and Titus 3:10, I just want to reiterate again that the correction the the goal initially when you always tell someone about someone's sin is to tell them why it's a sin you got to explain it out it's part of the training process it's part of the concept of you got it's a training it's a discipline um remember that god is using every believer in each other's lives to sharpen one another and to help us to grow. So when another Christian comes to me and says that what you did was a sin, then I understand that there is a reason why that person is coming to me, why the Lord is using that person in my life. All all of us can be used for each other's discipline, and all of us should be readily receiving it because we all need it, because of our pride. And so all discipline from the Lord is about correction. It is to save themselves either of one of two judgments. Remember, there are two types of judgments in Scripture, right? you have the great white throne judgment. That's the final judgment of all unbelievers. There's also the judgment seat of Christ for all believers. And church discipline, any type of discipline, or correction, or if someone confronting you by your sin, if the idea is to save you from one of those two judgments, Because if you don't have the gospel in your life, and your heart's never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then hopefully someone will love you enough to basically tell you to your face that your persistent pattern of sin could be a sign that you're not saved that's one one reason why we discipline people. But the other reason we discipline people, just because they get disciplined, remember, it's not always because they're an unbeliever. Believers can be disciplined too. And the reason believers get disciplined is because um, they have adopted some philosophy of the world and they have disconnected certain um, truths of scripture in their life. Okay, but it's also because some believers can be stubborn and prideful, and they know it's wrong, and they are persistently in sinning, even though they know in their heart it's wrong. And so we wake them up to help them be better prepared for the meeting with our Lord. Okay? That's love. That is the form of love that we do in church. It's not about us feeling so good about ourselves, it's not about making other people feel good either, but that is a very, very loving thing to do because at the cost of how we feel today, we're making us the person have a much better day of judgment later and If you can have that internal perspective of church discipline, you'll have a better understanding on why it's such a loving and good thing. Now, listen to Paul, who told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Paul tells Timothy, who is taking on the role of what we could call the pastor for the Church of Ephesus, as we use it today to avoid divisive people. So there's a bit of a parallel language here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Don't quarrel. Don't get into controversies. In the early part of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, okay, and you can you can compare that with the beginning part of Titus 3. Paul says the same thing to Titus, right? So at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 to 26, he says something very interesting. And I want to read this to you guys. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 to 26. Timothy writes this. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to him, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, to do his will. What a wonderful reminder to me as an elder Okay, that all elders, our goal, our aim, is to be kind to everyone. Wait, wait wait a minute. Even to those who are causing some trouble in the church, absolutely. We don't pick and choose who to be kind to. God himself says to be kind to everyone. But we also need to patiently endure evil and Here's the key here. It says we are the correct opponents with gentleness. And that word opponents, it's a different Greek word than hereticos, right found in Titus 3.10. But the word there, opponents, means someone who stands opposed to what you are teaching or what you are about. This is literally how we would understand the meaning of opponents—someone Someone who is against you. So if some, even though there are people in the church that can seemingly be against the ministry of the gospel or against the truth, our first initial reaction is to correct them with gentleness. That word correcting is opponents. That word correcting is the word I mentioned earlier. It's padiah. We correct them, reprove them, which means we convince them of the error, but we correct them and we're training them Right, if they are indeed believers, right? But why do we do all this? Even with correcting opponents or divisive people, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, it says right here here's our hope. We hope that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses. And escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I mean, this is an an incredible passage that tells us that even with the Titus 3:10 church discipline, we are never to lose hope of the gospel. But then you say, How is that possible when we are kicking them out of the church and the church is not even able to go after them? And isn't that why it's such a difficult command to follow? In Matthew 18, God allows the church to be in the process to win over sin, just like the parable of the lost sheep. But in Titus 3.10 situation, where you're dealing with a divisive person, the unity of the church is so important. It is such at the Forefront of what God wants for his church, that if the elders deem a certain person dangerous in regards to him changing his story or acting like a politician and, and compromising his view just to confuse people and get people to see his side, well, that is way too dangerous. That's what the scripture says. To get people to come after that person, you must entrust that person to do it. You must entrust that person to the Lord. And I know it's hard to believe, but guess what? God can save people without you. God can still do a good work in a sinner's heart without your interaction with that person. It is a grace to us that God allows us to take part in evangelism or sharing the gospel with someone or even walking with someone who's struggling in their sin and walking through with them in Scripture. This is a grace of God. But let's be reminded that God doesn't need any of us. And so in this case where Titus 3.10 discipline is happening, and then there was a gentle confrontation of the error, and the person has resisted, and you bring two or three witnesses to try to get through the person again, but the person is in this is blindness there and the person will not repent from their error and we're seeing divisive behavior, then we trust in the scriptures and that we protect his church so that Christ will be on it. Very simple as that. And as much as it's difficult, that's why we trust in the Lord and we pray. We pray for people we're being disciplined that like God may grant them repentance, something that what He can do in the midst. So we are to still confront and correct. That's the point. We just don't. We don't just avoid someone because they make us feel uncomfortable, or we have concerns about someone, or early on you sort of deem someone, well, wow, this person could be divisive. I better start avoiding them." No, we're all in a spiritual battle, aren't we? We don't battle flesh and blood, meaning that that divisive person is not our ultimate enemy. Okay, what does Ephesians six tells us? Where's the battle against? The battle is against rulers. It's against authorities. It's against the cosmic powers over this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil. In heavenly places. So, in fact, the same chapter of 2 Timothy chapter 2, it actually names two people who are being divisive. Himeneus and I wanna say Phineas. Okay. I might be totally mispronouncing those names, but it actually names two people, okay? And these two men were stirring up the church because they were saying that the resurrection already happened. And Paul was using these two men as an example of divisive person, people, opponents, basically, right? But it's interesting that the two men who were stirring up the church, Paul says to Timothy that he, they have upset some in the church. They didn't upset everybody. And he goes on to say in verse 19 of 2 Timothy 2, Paul reminds Timothy, that the reason for discipline isn't a test from the Lord, so He knows who who belongs to him. God already knows this. It says right here, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal: The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone whose name is the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's the point of discipline. It's not a way for God to know who belongs to him or who doesn't belong to him. God already knows that. The discipline has a practical purpose in our sanctification. It's so that his people will depart from iniquity. After we announced the, the three church discipline cases in our last members meeting, I was talking with different brothers and sisters in the church, and they were sharing with me that they are, they care more about holiness, that they examine their own lives to make sure that they're walking right with the Lord and that they're living in the scriptures. And that is the sanctification result. That's the result of the Spirit working in the church every time the church is dealing with the church discipline case. So as we're praying for these individuals who are being disciplined, that God may grant them repentance, it is also a time for us to self-examine ourselves, to make sure we're walking right with the Lord. And it's interesting, nobody can trick God or persuade God, right? The one whom we should actually fear in all discipline cases. Some people, um, they're saying that the elders are scary. Some people say the pastor looks mean, seems mean, or the perception of the leaders seem harsh. And we just want to remind you that any of those perceptions put on the leaders it is nothing compared to God's holiness. It is nothing compared to God's holiness. He is the one we should all fear. This idea that Jesus is some happy go lucky, um, wishy washy, uh, just a nice guy is a complete fallacy. This is a wrong view of Christ. He came as a baby, the first coming, and he came as a servant. But the, his next coming, the second coming, he's going to come as judge, and he will pour out his wrath on this world, on the leaders of this world, and that's what the book of Revelation tells us. But let me ask you guys: It says there in verse eighteen that the the two individuals saying that the resurrection already happened in Second Timothy two that they are upsetting the faith of some. Where would you guys stand? Are you guys so easily swayed? Are you would you be categorized in that group of some? Or do you have the anchor of the word of God? Would you have discernment? And in 1 John chapter 4, it says, test the spirits. And you're asking God for wisdom. Or are you part of that mature group? What Paul was saying. And the near the end of his ministry, because the the letter of Second Timothy is considered to be Paul's last and final epistle right before he's being beheaded um, in Rome, so he's already arrested in Rome he he wrote Second Timothy, and he's at the end of his ropes, and so that means he's left Timothy in the Church of Ephesus so the Church of Ephesus by this time it's a mature church it's been around for potentially uh, at least maybe 10 years, maybe even more. It's been around longer than the Church of Crete and Titus. And the only point I want to make is this, that there is a bit of a spectrum here of how Paul is addressing to Timothy a longer letter with more explanations compared to Titus, a shorter letter with very short and succinct commands the the church in Crete that Titus was struggling with was a church plant, a young church. Any divisive person could be completely devastating to a church that is smaller on the younger side with a lack of discernment. It was very urgent for Titus to act quick and swiftly for a church of that size. But on the other hand, you see th- Timothy. The tone that Paul uses with Timothy is that maintain what's already been done. Maintain the ministry, but be faithful. He's telling Timothy to be faithful to his calling and to continue to preach the word in and out of season, right? And so what we have here is a bit of a spectrum. How quickly and swiftly should leaders act when there's a divisive person in the church? I would say that you may want to take a chance and move a little faster if it's being very clear that the person is divisive and to remove that person from the congregation sooner rather than later. If it's a young younger church. If it's a more mature church, um you're gonna have a core of mature believers in the church that aren't going to be easily swayed by divisive people. And I think the elders should take take that into consideration as well and to hopefully confront these so-called people who are appearing with divisive characteristics and, um, and you can probably take a few more meetings to try to confront and be with this person without the concern that it can be devastating to the church. But um, that's the goal of Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose, that all of you would grow in wisdom and discernment upon the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that you, that you yourself, not just the elders, that you yourself can help protect the church. Right? That is the goal of the church. That we are trying to mature believers to be able to have the discernment and the faith in the Word of God. Not in faith in us, guys. Ultimately, the faith in the Word of God. But to have discernment about people that could potentially be devastating to the church. So with that said, I'm going to end with um, a five points here on how you know a person is being divisive, because that's kind of the main question. So you guys can see that the passage is very really clear: treat a divisive person like this, and treat a sinning member with Matthew eighteen, um, divisive person with Titus three ten. So how do you know someone's being divisive? So I'm going to give you five five ways to know that a person is being divisive. And I'm going to say all five here we will go through each one real quick. The first one is they promote an error. The divisive person promotes an error. They protect the error. They are prideful about the error. They persuade others to the error. And then ultimately they're perverse about the error. Those are the five points. Let's go through them real quick. One of the ways you know a person's being divisive is they start promoting an error. They start sharing an idea. It's an opinion, something that is unbiblical. Okay? And that's the key. It's an unbiblical idea. And in teaching, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, this is an example here that not all divisiveness is about what you teach with your lips. It can also be about your behavior. And that can be divisive, because in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and I'm just going to summarize it, Peter from Jerusalem visits Paul in Antioch, and Peter being a Jewish Christian, he was spending time with the Gentile Christians and eating with them, but guess what? When James, the brother of Jesus, along with some other Jewish Christians, came to visit Antioch as well, Peter, Peter, for whatever reason, shunned the Gentiles, and started eating only with the Jewish Christians, which Paul said that very behavior itself was anti-gospel. It was contrary to what the gospel was about. And Paul later in the Galatians says that there is no Jew, there is no Greek, uh, we are all one and the same in Christ. And think about that. Peter didn't even teach or say anything with his mouth. It was merely by behavior and Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and 14 says that Paul went and opposed Peter to his face, another apostle. That's an incredible example that Paul is setting here for us to maintain the clarity of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel. So they're promoting an error. It doesn't have to be a teaching. It can also be by behavior or posturing, okay? But any type of behavior or attitude that is contrary to, To the gospel. This is promoting an error. This is promoting an error. Second is. First of all. First is they promote an error. Second is. They protect the error. They protect the error. They get defensive about the error. For some reason. So. They defend the error. Rather than allow themselves. To be persuaded by scripture. They are shown to be uncorrectable. And unteachable. They deflect. The real issue, and this is what Jesus said about errors, by the way, in Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus says, beware of the yeast of Pharisees, the yeast of Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the leaven is symbolizing error something unbiblical, hypocrisy, okay? Something that is outside of scripture. When you promote something that is unbiblical in the church, okay, and it goes uncorrected for a prolonged period of time, it is like leavening in a lump of bread, and eventually the bread is going to rise. It's going to become like um, a loaf of bread that we're used to. Unleavened bread is flat bread, okay? It has no rise in it. And it remains flat. So a little bit of leaven symbolizes the fact that it doesn't take much. That's the point. That error that is unbiblical, that is contrary to the gospel, uncorrected, can turn into a bigger, big problem and can possibly contaminate the church. That is an incredible, incredible warning. So, first one is promote the error, second is protect the error. Third is they are prideful about the error. They are prideful about the error. The error is about self-promotion. It's about making their own opinion authoritative rather than the word of God. It's about making themselves to be viewed to be smarter, more clever, more wise than they really are. The word hereticos in Titus chapter 3 verse 10 is someone who is self-appointing and self-elevating. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 to 6, Paul had a ministry of destroying lofty opinions. Lofty opinions. Starting with verse 5, it says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Think about that. And that is a great passage, by the way, to support the concept of Christian apologetics. Because that is Christian apologetics. It's not just on the defensive, on how to defend the truth of Scripture. It is also on the offensive, that we destroy the false arguments that can be contrary to Scripture. And that is what Paul did. So they are prideful about the error. They are prideful about the error. Number four, they persuade others to the error. They persuade others to the error. The main agenda by a divisive person, uh, a divisive person is to convince someone that they are right, and that their lofty opinion deserves to be supported. So the Greek word hereticos is someone who is an expert of half truths, half truths, just to get you to become their follower. And you can't seem to pin them to get them to admit something for some reason. They seem to move around. They'll change the basis of their argument just so, just to make sure that they don't have to admit that they're wrong, right? So this is the idea of compromise, just like a politician, just to persuade others to their side. Of course, this is being fueled by pride, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is the same chapter that has the very well-known verse that all scripture is inspired by God. Well, before that verse, um, 2 Timothy 3 mentions two names, Janus and Jambres, who are the names actually, um, according to um, history, that these were probably the two guys, the two magicians that were opposing Moses. And so when Moses were doing signs and wonders, like throwing the staff on the ground, turning with the snake, remember those two magicians were able to replicate that. But the point of chapter three is that you're going to have people who on the outside look like godly. They look like they are obeying the word of God, but their obedience has nothing to do with the word of God. It is about themselves. And so the idea of bringing Janice and Jambrian into that chapter is to say that there is going to be an identical looking type of godliness. But don't mistake that godliness to be the one by scripture and that's what leads paul to say that all scripture is inspired by god profitable for teaching and truth correction training and righteousness the man of god will not be lacking anything all right so remember that this that the word of god there's a difference between obeying god there's a difference between obeying god and the scriptures and there's a difference between trying to be looking like a christian and and that's the idea that this person will do everything they can to look like a Christian, but in the end, nothing to do with Scripture. Okay? And then number five, okay? So four was persuade others to the error. Number five is there are, they are perverse about the error. Perverse. And what does perverse mean? It means a stubborn refusal to listen, and they keep insisting on their own way without considering the consequences and the damage they are doing. In other words, they cause a lot of trouble, right? And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, um, Paul writes to Galatians because they're being swayed by false teachers who are teaching a different gospel. And he writes this, Not that there is another one, another gospel, he's saying, but there are some who trouble you and want to disclose the gospel of Christ. Troublemakers have also been a big part of the early church, and you find it in the epistles everywhere. So, a divisive person promotes the error, they protect the error, they are prideful about the error, they persuade to the error, and they are perverse about the error. Okay? So, remember, the divisive person is not just a professing believer caught in persistent sin, but they are actively trying to convince people to come to their Can be very dangerous, which is why the title of this message is The Invasion of Persuasion. Right? The Invasion of Persuasion. So, how can you guys apply this message? I want you guys to take the challenge to be the mature body of Christ, the ones that can stand, okay, and test the spirits, like it says in 1 John 4, and have discernment and wisdom about these two different types of discipline of Matthew 18 and Titus 3.10. It will take faith for Titus 3.10. Titus 3.10, many times, you're just gonna hear the elders come up on the podium and announce that this particular person is divisive. We warn you to avoid this person. We're gonna say something like that. And for some of you guys, you're gonna be tempted to go after the person and then we'll find out about it later. And we'll tell you very gently that we did something very foolish. You know, one of the things that um you know we the elders are charged to do is to have faith in scripture, not in practical ideas. And so it may not seem practical sometimes, but what we try to do is to remain faithful to scripture. And um and we think that you guys are also members in that church because you guys have faith in scripture as well. So if you believe someone's being divisive, okay, it is okay to go to that person one on one, just like Matthew 18, and confront the person of their sin, just like any other sin. But if you do have concerns and the person's not listening to you, and that person it does seem like um this person could be uh showing behavior, divisive behavior, like I just talked about, come to the elders. And let us know sooner rather than later so that we can help protect the church together. All right? And I think that's the main thing is, again, remember how much God loves unity in the church. Remember that God is all about the unity. Remember being a Christian is about unity with Christ and with one another. Remember that Christ had unity with the Father and that remember that all of us will be all united in the eternal state heaven that's mentioned in Revelation 20, 20, chapter 20, and onward, that we're all going to be united at the end. All believers in one eternal state with God the Father on the throne and God the Son on the throne side by side. Can you imagine that? All in perfect harmony. In perfect harmony That is the picture on earth of what the Church of Christ is. And so, with that said, um, you're here to honor the Lord, and we're going to continue to uh, trust in the Lord, trust in His word, and bring you to His church. All right. Um, hopefully, that was helpful, and I'm going to just end it right there, even though I actually have more notes on this. I'm realizing it's been long enough, and uh, I think I've given you guys plenty to consider, um, but I hope that you were encouraged by this message. Bow with me. I'm going to hold this in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, only you can regenerate hearts. Just like Christ called out the dead Lazarus in the tomb. Only Lazarus, the only way Lazarus was able to even hear the command was that you caused him to become alive. And then Lazarus was able to hear the command and do it. We are dead in our trespasses, Lord, like it says in Ephesians 2. And we pray that many of these disciplined cases, sometimes it's stubborn Christians. Sometimes there's blindness there. They are believers and they will come back after being disciplined by you, Lord. But sometimes, Lord, sometimes these discipline cases can reveal unregenerate hearts. And so we pray that the gospel will reach these hearts if they are indeed unsaved. We pray somehow you will grant them the gift of repentance. And just like us, we didn't deserve the gospel. And they don't deserve the gospel. But you are a gracious and merciful God. Your power is has no bounds. Your your power is immeasurable. So we trust in your love. We trust in your power. We trust in your word for your church. And we pray that you can see um, the just our desire and our attempt to be faithful to the scriptures. I pray that the spirit could give us the wisdom as a church, as leaders, starting with the deacons and the elders, I pray, Lord, that you can help us to be wise and discerning and give us that core group, the mature group in the church that will not be swayed by unbiblical opinions and divisive people. Protect your church, Lord. Keep us unified in your word and in Christ for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for joining, and uh, I'll see you all soon.